This week's TribCast is sponsored by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. There's $1 million in grant funding available in your area from Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas and National Fitness Campaign. To learn more, visit nationalfitnesscampaign.com slash Texas. And the Association of Electric Companies of Texas is your resource for understanding the electric markets in Texas. Get an overview with our Electricity 101 and our glossary at aect.net. Hello everyone, welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for July 1st, 2022. My name is Patrick Svitek and I'm the Trib's primary political correspondent, filling in as your guest host for this week. Today I'm joined by Loemi Creel, a reporter with the Texas Tribune ProPublica Investigative Unit, Eleanor Klibanoff, our women's health reporter, and Abby Livingston, the Tribune's Washington Bureau Chief. Thanks everyone for joining. It was a very busy and consequential week on all of your beats. We'll start with the horrifying news that came out of San Antonio on Monday. Nearly 50 migrants were found dead inside a tractor trailer in the city. 16 were hospitalized, and the death toll is now at 53. So, Lomi, what what do we know about the latest in this tragedy that happened in San Antonio? Um, obviously, uh, these uh, you know deaths were discovered on Monday. It's Friday as we're recording this. What are some of the latest details coming out of the investigation? So we know, Patrick, that the death toll has crept up to, I believe, 53 people. Um, Many of the people that were taken to hospital have since passed away. Authorities have also uh, charged, I believe, at least uh, three people, including the suspected driver in this case. And there's a little bit more information about the, the tractor trailer. Uh, Congressman Henry Cuellar, who's a Democrat from Laredo, has said that the, the truck passed southbound to Laredo, went going through a checkpoint, and then came back up north towards San Antonio, um, but apparently wasn't um, inspected at that checkpoint. It was just passed through, which is you know, not unusual. Not every truck at checkpoints are inspected. And in this case also, the truck was cloned, meaning that um, it had taken the, the truck had the legitimate credentials um, documents of of a real trucking company um, and was using that to pass through but it wasn't actually part of that that company's fleet what are some of the big things we still don't know i know there's a lot we still don't know but in in your from your perspective at least what, what do you think are still some of the major outstanding questions about this situation well i think we you know we know that the air conditioning stopped working in the truck um, this has sort of come out through court documents, but that the, the one of the people who was communicating with the driver was trying to check in with him, was sending him sort of increasingly frantic messages about where he was. Um, and then at some point, the driver, who authorities later said was was high on methamphetamine, abandoned the, the truck on this kind of rural road in South San Antonio. By then, many people were dead. Some people had kind of straggled out of the truck or ended up out on the, um, in several city blocks near near there. But I, I think what we don't know is sort of exactly when when that happened, um, how long these people were, were in that um, condition. Obviously, it was incredibly hot inside the truck and just generally in South Texas this week. 
Um, and also the whole operation behind it, which is what authorities are investigating. It clearly wasn't just these three people who have been taken into custody so far. Um, these people likely had crossed the border and were waiting in Laredo to be picked up and take, some authorities have said they were going to be taken to work. So it's unclear if they were all going to the same place or just different destinations. And then of course, the, the stories are trickling in from you know the devastating heart breaking stories of just who every one of, of these victims were and kind of their individual unique situations. Some of them were children traveling to indigenous girls from Guatemala. So, you know, the whole extent of sort of who's to blame in this operation, uh, you know, who these people were that suffered these truly horrific deaths, and then also kind of what went wrong. Um, I mean, we know that Again, not every truck is inspected at these checkpoints, but was there something more that uh, CBP could have done? The governor has said this week that he's going to sort of add additional checkpoints um, from DPS. Um, but, you know, more about kind of if any of this could have been kind of caught earlier on the both the federal and state side, I think, is what we're still looking to understand. Yeah, you mentioned about the, you at least hinted at kind of the, the blame game here, or at least the question of who's to blame for this. You saw the governor obviously come out, uh, I think it was like within an hour or two of the initial reports and say these deaths are on Joe Biden. Obviously, there's an element uh, of politics to, to that kind of rhetoric. But are, are there any relevant recent policy decisions that are wrapped up in this? When you look at the potential failures that led to this, are there are there any, you know, policies that you think we're, we're partially to blame? Um, or do you think it's it's just a really, it's too early to say where, where this, you know, system could have failed or if there even was a system in place to, to catch this kind of act? So we know that President Biden has, has kept in place Title 42 from President Trump, which is the pandemic emergency order that expels um, many migrants when they come to the border directly. So they're not eligible for any sort of asylum screenings they're not released into the US. Um, and President Biden has said he wanted to end that, but has so far had to keep it in place because of a court order. And when you look at the demographic of these people, many of the, the victims of this truck, in particular, single men from Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, and Mexico, of that population, almost all of them are immediately expelled under the Title 42 health order. So that means it's, it's, it's almost impossible for them to try to seek asylum or, or come into the US in, in any kind of uh, authorized way. And so that what immigrant advocates have said is that increasingly has led to people seek migrants, especially single men seeking more dangerous ways to come across. Um, and they, they found the UN found that last year was actually the most um, dangerous uh, for migrant deaths across, you know, along the border as that policy in particular has been kept in place. Got it. And you also mentioned these new truck checkpoints that uh, Governor Abbott ordered in the wake of this. What do we know about the details of those new checkpoints? I know he was a little tight-lipped about them at the news conference where he announced them. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we know that much about it. He has declined to say exactly where he was going to put it. Um, he, but he has sort of said that that he's going to ramp up efforts on DPS making those checkpoints um, inspections. 
although they won't be, I believe, at, at, at official ports of entry. Um, we know that he had like a similar effort in April and that didn't last very long. And so I'm not clear exactly how this effort is, is gonna differ. Yeah, I think that was one of the immediate questions a lot of us had. A lot of us, and I'm sure a lot of people involved in cross-border trade very vividly remember in April those expanded vehicle inspections that he ordered and that um, you know caused uh, you know just massive delays at the border. I think DPS has confirmed that they're not going to put these checkpoints at ports of entry, but I think it could still be an open question of whether um, you know this could contribute to you know jamming up trade on maybe on a smaller uh, scale um, than we saw in April. So I think that's something that everyone was um, kind of curious about when we heard that announcement. So thank you so much for joining us and, and discussing this topic. We really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me. Eleanor, the big story on your beat this week continued to be the U.S. Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe v. Wade. We really saw that fight uh, shift to the courts this week in Texas. Can you tell us just where that legal battle is at as of uh, noon Friday? Yeah, we are at what is likely the beginning of a long and bitter court battle here in Texas, um, specifically about these, uh, what we are sort of calling the pre-Roe statutes, which are the laws that were on the books uh, banning abortion before Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973. Uh, what people sometimes call these like zombie laws that were never taken off the books, could not be enforced for 50 years. Um, and now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, they are some people argue, back in play. And Attorney General Ken Paxton has um, said that prosecutors you know, could consider bringing charges against um, abortion providers immediately under those pre-row statutes. Uh, this week, a group of abortion providers asked a judge in Houston to sort of weigh in on that. Um, the judge granted a temporary restraining order allowing those clinics that filed the lawsuit to resume abortions up to about six weeks of pregnancy um, immediately. Paxton appealed that decision. When the appeals court did not move fast enough for his liking, he has asked the Supreme Court of Texas to intervene. And we now wait for the high court to, frankly, just decide whether or not abortions uh, can continue while the legal battle proceeds. That's really the tiny part we're waiting for. Right. And just to be clear, this is all separate from the state's new trigger law, right? The, the law that legislators passed last year that automatically would ban abortion in Texas if Roe v. Wade is overturned. Just tell us what, what we know about the timeline for that separate from this legal battle, because I know initially it seemed like there was some confusion over that 30 day timeline after a, a ruling or I guess a, a judgment is what we've clarified, right? Right. Yeah. Texas is in a very confusing spot right now. You know, a lot of other states um, are arguing over one thing, which is their you know, court over their trigger ban. Uh, we are not even at that stage yet. We are not even at the trigger ban legal fight if there will be one yet. Um, the trigger ban in Texas goes into effect 30 days after the Supreme Court issues a judgment. Uh, last Friday, they issued an opinion. Uh, then there's like this interim period where people can make requests for rehearings and things like that. Generally, it takes about 25, it takes at least 25 days for the court to um, certify that opinion into a judgment. So we've sort of been talking about it as, you know, at least 25 plus 30 days until that trigger law goes into effect. Right. But I guess for our attorney general, he's already trying to enforce the pre-row laws. Is that, is that correct? That's right. And so right now the court question, the court battles are over whether the pre-row statutes are in effect. Once and we need that answer now because we need to know if abortion clinics can continue providing abortions 
for the next 30 plus 25 days. But we also need that answer because we are soon in, you know, that, you know, in less than two months, we will have two different abortion laws on the books. One that uh, the pre-row statutes, you know, has a two to five year um, in, uh, has a punishment of two to five years in prison for performing an abortion. The trigger ban has five years to life in prison um, for performing an abortion. And they just have like very different uh, penalties. And we're about to be in a very confusing legal situation if this doesn't get resolved. Yeah, you mentioned just the uh, confusing situation we're in legally. How are clinics themselves grappling with that as of this week? You know, I think the clinics that have been told they can resume abortions are, you know, thrilled by that little window. Um, You know, they're very aware that they are fighting at this point for a matter of days that they could be providing abortions. um, And they're sort of eager to perform any abortions they can before that window closes entirely. Um, I also think that this confusion is really stressful to them and to their patients. I mean, they're telling patients like, if you get here now, like if you come in today, we can give you an abortion. We think if you come in tomorrow, I don't know what we can, you know, there's no guarantee. There's no promises. So it's really been very stressful. And we should say that uh, attorney general Ken Paxton has said in his appeal filing that they may be legally liable going forward. If this temporary restraining order is overturned, that remains to be seen. Right. So if, if once we get through this legal battle and we, we are in a world where the trigger law is in effect. You've done some some great reporting on how this could play out uh, at the local level with prosecutors. We've had, I think, at least five prosecutors in, in big urban or suburban counties say that they'll refuse to pursue criminal charges for you know related to these new abortion laws in Texas. But at the same time, I read get a great story on this. You said that may not really matter when all is is said and done or may not be as impactful as as it sounds like on the surface. Tell us a little bit about that, why those prosecutors' decisions um, may not exactly lead to the outcome that um, abortion rights advocates hope. Yeah, we've got two things happening in Texas. We've got, like you said, these five prosecutors who have come out explicitly saying they're not going to prosecute abortion-related crimes. We've got other prosecutors who have sort of said you know, they've made sort of nods towards feeling like this is not the primary thing they're going to be focusing on. We've got a local, um, in this case, you know, the Austin City Council, and just recently um, looks like Denton is going to try to follow suit to um, saying that, you know, as municipalities, they are not going to use police resources to investigate abortion um, or abortion-related crimes. Once the trigger law is in effect, though, this is not just a criminal matter. The uh, trigger law comes with, it says that the attorney general shall file lawsuit trying to seek minimum $100,000 um, like penalty essentially against anyone who performs an abortion. So that means that no matter who the attorney general is, they have to seek this loss. They have to file this lawsuit seeking $100,000. And it, it also comes with, you know, you could lose your medical license. You could lose any professional licenses you have. So for most people, it would be a relief to know that they will not face criminal charges, but that does not, you know, remove the threat of $100,000 and the loss of your license. That's just not going to keep the clinic. Right. That's, that's a civil matter separate from a criminal matter, yeah. right? Yeah. And so it's not going to keep abortion clinics open. It, you know, we talked to legal experts who said, you know, this is not entirely symbolic. It is 
you know, we're going to move out of an era of abortion clinics, sort of public uh, facing certified abortion clinics and into an era of people self-managing medication abortion at home. And so this will give those people some comfort that, you know, they are not going to be, they're not going to be living in a jurisdiction that is attempting to actively root them out and find them and criminally prosecute them. Got it. Looking toward the next legislative session, um, we've heard from some Republican lawmakers already that they think there's still more to be done to crack down on abortion in Texas, even in a post-Roe world. Where do you expect, I know it's early, but where do you expect that policy response from the Republicans to go? I mean, does it involve trying to crack down on these local prosecutors, even as you acknowledge they, they may not be entirely accomplishing what they want to? or what advocates would, would hope from them. So where do you see that policy response going from the Republicans at this point? Yeah, I mean, we're hearing a lot of ideas being batted around and it's very clear, like they are, Texas legislators are not done trying to push the envelope on abortion law. Um, I will say like right now we are hearing about these sort of most extreme proposals. Depend, I'm not entirely sure what of that will turn into actual legislation, but the main focus seems to be um, we're hearing a lot of talk about trying to find ways to appoint special prosecutors so that if a local prosecutor won't bring charges, um, the attorney general would be empowered to appoint or some entity would be empowered to appoint a special prosecutor that would take on those charges. Um, sort of, you know, what some legal experts say, you know, they're fearful that we're basically going to end up with sort of a special abortion prosecution team that's much more concerning for advocates than a local prosecutor. And the other thing that, you know, basically every state that's trying to ban abortion or trying to crack down on abortion is going to try to find ways to do is stop people from leaving the state uh, to seek abortions. It remains to be seen, you know, there's not a simple way to do that. You can't just make a law saying you can't, you know, go to New Mexico and get an abortion. But there are creative ways to do that. And that is like sort of what remains to be seen is like, what is what avenue are they going to try to make that feasible? And I think a lot about the fact that, you know, for 48 years, they said, you know, you can't ban abortion before viability. And Texas found a way with, you know, right. they showed so, their creativity recently. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I, it's not off the table. We've got time for just a little more on this topic. Um, one other story I wanted to ask you about this week, you wrote with Aaron Douglas about how abortion funds are dealing with this news. It seems like they're also dealing with the very confusing and uncertain legal uh, framework right now. How, how have they been responding? Yeah, so these groups um, that you know help people pay for and access abortions, generally at this point out of state, that's been what they've been doing since Senate Bill 8 went into effect. They have just stopped provi uh, providing any funding for people to access abortions outside of the state. They're very fearful about what the potential legal consequences, like the criminal consequences could be. Um, you know, all the lawyers we talked to said, you know, at this point it would be very difficult and foolhardy for someone to try to bring criminal charges against them for funding an abortion out of state. It's just not a strong case and there's not really a strong argument for it. But this speaks to, I think, the fear and the uncertainty that the this law confusion has created. And like at the end of the day, it does matter what the law says for the lawyers, but for the people who are trying to access abortions and access funding, the thing that really matters is like, can they get the money? Can they get an appointment? And it's no and no in Texas right now. Got it. Thank you, Eleanor. And let's take a break now to hear from our sponsors. Methodist Healthcare Ministries is committed to health equity 
striving to create more fair and just opportunities for all to thrive. Learn more at mhm.org. And Lone Star College is an effective workforce partner, training tomorrow's employees today. Find out more at lonestar.edu. And we're back. Abby, you've been covering the January 6th hearings in Washington for us. It seems like, um, you know, every few days we learn about uh, a new Texas connection through these hearings. Uh, what was the latest Texas connection that we learned about? Well, the latest is that uh, former Congressman uh, John Ratcliffe, who went on in 2020 to be the director of national intelligence, which oversees the entire intelligence community, which is CIA, FBI, uh, I don't know if FBI is in that, but um, NSA, like all of the intelligence. Um, he's also a former uh, district attorney in East Texas, a federal district attorney. And um, we, we learned early in the hearing on, I guess it was Wednesday or Tuesday, I can't even remember anymore, that he um, pushed back against President Trump's efforts to overturn the election, that he privately was cautioning against this action and that there was some sense that he felt it would not be good for democracy. So he was sort of a quiet figure in that period. And I hadn't really thought that much about his, the role he may have played in there, but that is at least the testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson, who I think we all know who she is now. Absolutely. Did Radcliffe uh, respond to her testimony at all? Uh, I did not get a, uh, a, a, get a comment back. So um, I think we're still, uh, learning about it, but I think what also is interesting here, and this is someone who, uh, coming from me, who's covered Texas for eight years in Congress, Texans are almost in the middle of everything. And it's actually been kind of interesting of how Texas hasn't been in the mix. There isn't a Texan on this committee. Um, the, the Louis Gumbert has emerged. Um, he allegedly asked for a pardon. He has denied that. So, um, you know, it's, it's, we always are in the mix, but this, we're not at the forefront in the way we usually are. That's true. That's true. Are there any other Texas connections that you're watching out for as these as these hearings proceed or any other kind of revelations that you think could have some kind of connection back to Texas? I think the thing I'm interested in that I um, I'm least knowledgeable about is. What people like Stuart Rhodes, who were who are now, um, you know, I think he's uh, he's in custody, um, but he's from Texas and these not necessarily the politicians, but the folks who are from Texas who are part of the insurrection, what is their tie to this? And I think we're still learning that. I think that's probably going to be at the forefront in mid-July if, if that exists. That I think that they're saving that information toward the end. But again, this committee is very tight-lipped. There have been some leaks over the last year, but they've been pretty insubstantial compared to what we've seen in the last few weeks. So I think a lot of times um, reporters on Capitol Hill tend to have a pretty good idea of what's coming in a hearing. And this time around, we're just as surprised as the public. Abby, one last question on this. What are we hearing, if at all, from Republican members of the current Republican members of the Texas delegation on these hearings? Are they reacting at all to them or are they just kind of dismissing them and, and ignoring them? Well, we're in recess, um, which that adds a layer of how extraordinary this week's hearing was that Liz Cheney and Benny Thompson flew back to Washington to host this hearing during recess. Um, that's sort of like coming into work on your day off in Congress terms. That's the best way I've been able to explain it to folks. Um, so it's less we have less access to members of Congress in Washington because they're not here. The general sense is um, broadly speaking, maybe not necessarily specific to Texas, is Republican members of Congress are floored with these revelations. Now, some are quick to dismiss them. There's been some 
questions about uh, Hutchinson's testimony and the Secret Service, um, it should be noted she's the one who's going under oath and the people pushing back have not. Um, but I also think the shock is, it goes back to the initial decision of leader Kevin McCarthy deciding to pull uh, his members out of the committee. Back then, he put several members who now may be subject of investigation in the committee on the investigating committee, and Nancy Pelosi said no. Um, so he pulled everyone off. That included uh, Congressman Troy Nels um, from Fort Bend County. Um, and early on, he dismissed the um, relevance of this committee. Um, but Republicans would not be shocked if they had gone ahead and put their folks up. Um, and so it's, it, it goes back to that. And that is something that apparently President Trump is extremely angry about. Got it. Well, thanks for joining us, Abby. Thanks for having me, Patrick. All right. That's all the time we have this week. I want to say thank you to our guests and our producer, Justin, and thank you to our sponsors, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas and the National Fitness Campaign, the Association of Electric Companies of Texas, uh, Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas, and Lone Star College. We'll see you all next week. There will be plenty of things to debate at TribFest 2022. One thing's for certain, you need to be there. Join us September 22nd through the 24th in downtown Austin for three days of debate and discussion with big name speakers like Joe Strauss, Jen Psaki, and many others. Get tickets now at tribfest.org.